On today's episode, I continue my chat with podiatrist Ian Griffiths. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. have no idea why you would, but if you haven't listened to part one already, please do so. Um, last episode, we started our conversation with Ian Griffiths to talk about plantar fasciitis, why it's so persistent, um, what mistakes a lot of runners make, and what some effective treatment can be. And we continue our conversation today, um, making it a bit more digestible by breaking into two parts and talk, we answer more of your patron questions. We talk about um, concurrent diagnoses, having two conditions at once, and also what are some hallmark plantar fasciitis uh, symptoms so that we know that it is an accurate diagnosis or we're um, a little bit more confident that it is plantar fasciitis instead of masquerading as something else. And so let's dive straight back into our chat with Ian. Michelle asks, around like, um, diagnoses or differential diagnoses. She's had a, a couple of years of foot pain and then had a diagnosis of Baxter's nerve neuroma or entrapment and then um, moved on. And I think the diagnosis changed to like a collapsed fat pad and now they're suggesting maybe something else. I guess to, to form this into a question, is there um, common signs and symptoms for plantar fascia? And then if someone's displaying other symptoms, would you maybe suspect there's another pathological involvement? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad Michelle's asked this question because I'm conscious that we have been very much talking about, you know, plantar fascia or plantar heel pain. Um, and you could you could be forgiven for us thinking that it's the only thing that can affect the heel. And as, as mm. Michelle is experiencing, it's far from the case. There's there's a lot of anatomy in the area. There's there's a lot of differential di- potential differential diagnoses. Um, I'm not I'm not sure what a collapsed fat pad is. That's a different terminology to perhaps what we use here. Like we we could get fat pad atrophy. Or yeah, fat pad I think irrit- it might be irrit- the same thing. I read yeah, the same. I read it and I thought maybe it's a atrophy of the fat pad. Yeah, or fat pad um, irritation. But yeah, the, you know, she's mentioned two two differentials there: fat pad irritation, um, Baxter's nerve. Which anyone that doesn't know, it's just a just a small nerve that sort of um, sits in between a couple of the intrinsic muscles and can get kind of compressed or pinched and give you very very um similar presentation uh, symptoms to plantar uh, old school what we would refer to as plantar fasciitis probably i would say neural the neural component of heel pain easily the one that's missed the most um so there's an awful lot of differentials the reality is if you develop plantar heel you know pain in the on the undersurface of your heel 
and you go and see someone and you know, regardless of who they are and how much they actually see heel pain, whether they know what they're talking about or not, the chances are you probably leave with the diagnosis of air quotes, plantar fasciitis. And even though that's far from the only diagnosis there, um, there's many, as we've, we've mentioned, um, the reality is if someone just indiscriminately gives you a diagnosis of it being the plantar fascia, they're probably going to be right more than they're wrong. Because as we've already mentioned, just how common, how prevalent um, this problem is. But it, it is important to exclude other things in that area. Things like, you know, like we say, because the reason you want to know what you're dealing with is because you may be, you may manage them slightly differently. So you also want to exclude things like a stress fracture of the calcaneum. Obviously, uh, that's going to be a very different management. Um, there are other things in that region that are more sinister, of course, um, things like tumours, God forbid, you know, luckily, very rare. But these are the things that you want to make sure you're, you're not dealing with. Not to mention, of course, um, you know, when we talked about nerve, it can't not just a local irritated nerve. We can get ridiculous sort of uh, leg pain. We can get pain that manifests in the foot that, that isn't really a foot problem per se. So I think the most important thing, and it sounds like Michelle's had a um, had a journey that unfortunately we, we hear quite commonly is you bounce around a couple of diagnoses. And the thing that, that's kind of most upsetting about that is it's quite clear that until you're really, really confident what you're dealing with, um, can, can good management ever therefore, you know, commence? Um, and the argument is if we keep changing our diagnoses, why, are the, why is that diagnosis changing? Is it changing because we've, we, we've given it a diagnosis, we've managed that accordingly, it hasn't responded, Therefore, we've bumped, uh, must be something else. We've bumped onto a different diagnosis. And, and you know, that just sounds like a really frustrating um, journey. And, and unfortunately, you know, I feel for Michelle because you know, we hear that story a lot. There are definitely hallmarks that, that raise our suspicion of it being the plantar fascia. And I would say the most common one isn't, you know, it's not just where, where it hurts, because like we say, a lot of heel pain can hurt in the same area. But the thing that really raises our suspicion is that that first step pain, or what we refer to as post-static dyskinesia. So, a, a transient short uh, so short period of time where you feel stiff and sore and sensitive after a period of rest most common in the morning because you've had six seven eight hours of rest but in some scenarios if you're sitting at your desk um you know working away for a few hours and then you get up to to go for a sandwich you can get a slightly sort of diluted or, or lower level version of it um in the day as well so any kind of transient sensitivity or soreness on weight bearing after a period of non-weight bearing uh, usually raises our suspicion. That's very, very typical, I would say, of the plantar fascia. But the one thing to say is, you know, our clinical tests are all well and good. We we take a good history. We we we, we listen to the the nature and the location of the symptoms. We make it. We make a best guess. But we don't always get it right. Um, but I would say you know, pain in that sort of inferior aspect of of the heel post dyskinesia, so that first step pain after rest, they are the big two. Um, and the pain can, you know, some people refer to it as a dull ache, some people refer to it as a bruise, some people refer to it as a burning. Um, in that region, if you've got burning and tingling in that region without that first step pain in the morning, then you're kind of going, this sounds more like a Baxter's nerve than it does a plantar fascia. You know, these are the things that we hopefully, that, that help us sort of uh, guide us on the right path. Yeah. Unfortunately, all these diagnoses don't fit a very fine categorized line and it's very no. hard to, we know that life doesn't work that way. And sometimes, you know, you kind of do a thorough assessment. You think like 70% of it 
sounds like plantar fasciitis, but then, you know, there's this other 20, 30% that just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't fit this common characteristics. And then you think maybe let's just try to treat it like plantar fasciitis and then see if it's, um, see if that's effective. But we know in the back of our mind that there's just something that's not fitting the pattern. Um, and sometimes it can be 50, 50, sometimes it could just be a whole bunch of different things. And, um, like you said, there's, uh, getting an accurate diagnosis or getting someone to actually assess it is the best first step because then they can actually have a, an accurate assessment rather than just assuming that it's plantar fasciitis. And um, I like to use plantar fasciitis and I'll start the terminology that's very accurate when it comes to this actual pathology, but it's so commonly used. I just thought we'd just use it anyway. Um, but the, yeah, yeah. I, I think just the, to add, Sorry, just to dive in, just because of something you said there, um, I'm, I'm the same with you with terminology. I used to be a stickler for fasciitis, fasciopathy, I, I plant a heel pan. I don't tend to get too worried about it now because we're all talking about the same thing. But yeah, just to piggyback on what you said, um, we see common things commonly. So I think what we probably assume when we see these things and it ticks a few of the boxes is this, this is more likely to be you know, a plantar fascia problem than not. So we treat it accordingly. And then when it doesn't respond, we may re recalibrate our diagnosis. And that sounds like the journey that, that Michelle's been on. Um, and I think when, when something comes in, you know, this is the, the benefit of seeing someone who sees a lot of heel pain, seeing a specialist rather than asking strangers on the internet, so to speak, is that when things come into us, because we see the common things commonly, if something suddenly jumps out at us during the history taking or the examination as, as immediately quite atypical, then that's, we, we can get on top of, we can front foot that and get on top of that a bit early. So I've certainly seen people that have come in and said, I've had plantar fascia, fasciitis for, for six months, seven months. I've tried X, Y, Z. And I say, okay, let's have a look. And, and it's been a flexor hallucis longus tendinopathy, which is a very different condition. Um, you know, I've seen all sorts of, I've seen tib post tendinopathies. I've seen posterior ankle impingements all present as I have plantar fasciitis. Um, so there, there really is no substitute for, physically getting in front of someone who sees a lot of foot and ankle problems and saying, well, have I got what I think I've got? And am I doing the right things? Um, Cause that'll mm. just get you on track a bit quicker. Yeah. Um, extending for that or kind of just like, um, yeah, moving on to that question slightly. I had a cluster of patron questions come in around um, these kind of co co-diagnoses or like two presentations or three presentations at once around that particular area. So um, Steve and Holly were saying they both have Achilles tendinopathy as well as plantar fasciitis and Holly having um, big toe arthritis as well. And just wondering, is there a correlation between those, um, those diagnoses? Like, is it a, is it a correlation between training or is it when it comes to management, should they be managed differently or can they just be managed as two conditions effectively? Yeah. Uh, this is an interesting, this, this one uh, really resonates with me because we, you know, we see feet all day and, and foot problems, whether they're, whether there's correlation, whether there's causation or whether they are just coexisting on the same foot, we see this a lot. So if someone comes in with, let's take, um, was it Holly who had the plantar fascia and the, and the big toe problem? Um, that's not, an, you know, we can see those things and, and then we can sit there and we can, we can uh, rightly or wrongly 
carve a story if we wish. We could say, well, we know that the plantar fascia inserts into the big toe. You know, degenerative change in the big toe, whether it be slow and gradual or post-traumatic or whatever it may be, that's going to affect the way the big toe functions or moves. That's going to influence what we know as the windlass mechanism, and that may change the loading on the fascia. Um, so you can, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but you can you can weave a story if you wish. Um, I think the, the fascinating thing for me is when we look at sort of, how we might manage or, or the things we may do to manage one, are they going to help the other or are they going to be a problem for the other? So for example, I've seen a lot of people with, uh, who've gone on to loading programs. Uh, so, you know, calf, calf raises for, let's say an Achilles tendinopathy or even for, for you know, loading their plantar fascia. Um, and that's, you know, absolutely the right thing to do for that tissue. But if you have a, an irritable or acute on chronic sort of degenerative big toe joint then going through loads and loads of heel raises tends to flare that up so what's really helping one problem doesn't help another so these things are the real world pragmatic problems i guess that, that we all face um the one thing I, I i will quickly say um and again it sort of comes under the list of differentials that we probably should have said in the last question but when steve mentioned I think it was Steve who said, um, I've got plantar fascia, plantar fasciitis and Achilles tendinopathy. Um, we should never completely, uh, we should always entertain the possibility as well that rather than just the mechanical overload of these tissues, we should always exclude that whether there's something more systemic or metabolic or inflammatory going on. Now, I don't know Steve's age or anything about him, of course, but I would say, generally speaking, if someone came in to see me and they said, you know, if we've got multiple site pain, you know, general, the general rule for me is if we've got sight in, pain in three sites, if someone says to me, both my plantar fascia are sore, both my Achilles are sore, it could just be that they're a, they're a crazy ultra marathon. We see an awful lot of those. But in a certain, certain other questions then may be asked about, OK, how is your general health? Do you get regular stomach upsets? Do you get regular eye infections or irritations? Um, do you have psoriasis or any dry scaly kind of skin problems and if there's a few yeses to some of those questions and then we ask about family health as well it might be that a rheumatological screening is appropriate um, just because as we know um, multi-site unexplained joint pain tendon pain that's something else we need to exclude um, so I don't know if that's probably answered this question but it just suddenly came to mind and I felt it was remiss remiss not to mention that 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 as well yeah, it's a good point. It's good to, to cover all those, whether it's relevant to Steve or not. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow not it's good to especially when you start talking about it, i'm like yeah let me chime in and say if things are bilateral as well that raises a question because when it comes to overload if it's usually a classic overload for some reason it always just happens on one side it very rarely happens on both and so if you're coming in with um, patella tendons on both sides then yeah it's very very strange and so it might lead you down another path that's that's very cool i know that sometimes when I ask a lot of questions to guests and we start trailing off and time gets ahead of us. I, I wrap things up quite quickly. I might skip some questions and I might go over like quickly go over some questions, but I've just been so fascinated about every single answer <laughs> that you've had, that I've just let you go. And sorry that I've, I'm um, sorry. I'm so a bit of a talker. 
<laughs> no, no, not at all. I, I apologise if we've gone over your normal episode length. I, I ramble a bit, so apologies on my behalf. My, um, my, my solution to that is just to do two-parter. So we might um, break that up into a two-parter. <laughs> but I do have um, another question. If someone has very chronic plantar fasciitis, they've had it for two or three years, they've tried some of these basic things. They've tried, um, say, loading and it's just irritated them they've tried say supportive footwear and they kind of get by but any other sort of like loading through the day kind of aggravates them um their i guess their work habits are causing a flare-up if they have to be on their feet all day like nurses and chefs a lot of those people um is there a starting point for them is there somewhere that you'd be like okay let's make a start here to see if we can help settle down this irritation As you were sort of describing that, you know, I was sort of assimilating it in my mind. And I was thinking when I hear long timeline, you know, real persistent slash chronic long timeline plus non-response to intervention plus high, still highly irritable, if that's the right way to describe the scenario you just set, a long timeline, non-responsive, highly irritable. Those for me alone are reason to say, let, rather than sort of look at what we do moving forward, let's let's go back one step. And do we need any deeper investigations? Do we need to, again, a, a bit like a previous question, do we need to ensure we, we, are, we have got the correct working diagnosis? A um, couple of things we also know with regard to that kind of scenario. Uh, there was some great work done by... Uh, all, the, all the great work is done by uh, Aussies, by the way, but great work done by Carl Landorf, um, who um, showed that, that there's a quite a high percentage of calcaneal bone marrow edema in people that present with plantar heel pain on, on these kind of timelines. So again, we'd want to exclude those kind of things. Think of that for the, for the runners listening you don't, you know, to, to, to try and unjargon that. Like Think of it like a bone bruising. So we're not just dealing with the, the fascia itself. The bone has now become irritable and involved. And again, the heel bone, um, when that gets uh, irritated itself, it's, um, it's something that, you know, you might say, okay, I'm in supportive trainers. Well, actually, maybe we need to go into a boot for a few weeks or something like that. So you'd want to exclude those kind of things. And the other thing, and again, we touched on it briefly with regard to the, you know, the pain experience and how it's complex and individual and not just biological, but influenced by the, you know, the psychosocial domains as well. Um, you know better than me, Brody. I'm certain that when it comes to the, the persistence of symptoms, particularly my, my understanding of the back pain literature, and I know I'm swaying a bit, bit out of my lane here and going a bit too far north in the body but the longer that symptoms persist for the more likely that there's strong factors from the psychological the sociological domains rather than just saying okay this is a tissue tissue level problem and because it's the foot and because it has such demand placed on it mechanical demand on a daily basis we are all guilty myself certainly included in that of someone coming in with a foot problem and us saying this is a mechanical problem and as we know, no pain is ever truly mechanical. All pain is individual, complex and influenced by biopsychosocial domains. But to go back to the work of Matt Cotchett, there's some really, really good work on, on some of the, I guess, psychological contributors to or psychological considerations to pain. And this bi-directional relationship, we're not saying uh, the key ones that come out are things like stress and depression. And again, I'm not saying if you're stressed and depressed, that causes heel pain. Um, although we know that those those um, scenarios do sort of influence pain, 
but heel pain can make you very stressed and depressed as well. So it's this bi-directional relationship. So when someone's got a really long timeline, it's highly irritable, it's non-responsive, I would say some investigations to make sure we're dealing with what we're actually dealing with and nothing more sinister. And we need to also at this point say, okay, all of the treatments we've talked about thus far in this episode have been very, very mechanical. We do X, do Y, do Z. Um, we need to think also at that point, I think outside, outside the mechanical and start considering the psychosocial aspects. How well is this person sleeping? What are they worrying about? You know, I'm not suggesting that we're, we're being pseudo psychologists here, but you know, you know, better than I with all your previous episodes that have covered pain science way better than I'm rambling through right now. That, that is something at this point that I would say we would want to place emphasis on also yeah and it, it needs its place in this interview as well because some people just find plantar fasciitis in the title and then listen to this episode and not have listened to all the previous and they only need to go back about six weeks to i did a two-parter with rachel zoffness who's a pain psychologist and explained just exactly that and my um my take on it is sometimes when people have had pain for a long time you get them to kind of write down a pain diary when they get their flare-ups, like, is there a rhyme or reason mechanically? And sometimes they say, look, I get a flare-up when um, I'm more stressed. Like it's on a day where I'm just wound up and I'm just really like in a negative space. That's when I experience like a, a heightened sensitivity and more pain and makes sense when you start to delve into what actual um, pain science is. And when it comes to plantar fasciitis, I know people really can spiral into like it starts to affect their work it starts to affect their ability to look after their family it may start to impact maybe their income like their and their maybe like the the primary income generator of their family and if they can't stand to do their job then there's a lot of stress around that and so that would fuel a lot of this sensitivity this would give a lot of relevance to the brain and so if there is a little sparking pain that's sensitized that's heightened and that's like sparks a real um, trouble for a lot of people. It can be very, very hard to overcome if they're in that cycle, yet we just give them taping, yet we just give them orthotics or we just give them stretches. It's, it can only, it might only help a little bit. Whereas if we address the psychosocial component of it and um, really educate them around pain science, really educate them or help them around the, the aspects they're worried about. And there's a lot of fear and address a lot of the, the anxieties and allay their fears a lot, then yeah, then treatment subsequent to that can be very like can be more effective. And so very important that you do mention that. It's very interesting with this topic. Um yeah, I, I think as we say, you know, anxiety, stress, depression can dial up sensitivity, but likewise, increased sensitivity can increase stress, anxiety, depression. Um, like I said, I just encourage people to, to head towards the work of, of Matt Koch at La Trobe. He's done lots of work all in the context of plantar heel pain and some of these non-mechanical, you know, more, more psychological phenomena and how they can kind of influence things. And, and hopefully what, when we talked earlier about the big wins, you know, the stretch, the plantar fascia stretching, and we talked about individualized education, asking someone to explain to us in their own words, what their understanding is that comes into the, to, to this discussion as well as essentially, you know, knowing that this, this may not just be a tissue level problem, like human tissues really shouldn't be sore for two years, you know, or knowing that, you know, you're not damaging yourself, you're sensitive, but you're sore, but safe. Again, I'm, I'm stealing these from the, the NOI guys, these, these, these sayings, but um, yeah, uh, worth mentioning, I thought. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm always, like you say, there seems to be a lot of researchers um, here in Australia that, that sort of make waves. I'm so proud to like always have these international <laughs> I'm speakers. I'm yeah, I know. I'm like, it makes me so proud to be Australian because I talk to all these international guests and they're like, all these people are from Australia. Like it's, it's weird. And um, I do know that like we do have a, a big um, vast kind of research center re- revolving around here. And there's obviously fantastic work in the UK and around Europe as well. But um, yeah, it always makes me proud to be Australian when I hear comments like that. <laughs> I'm still trying to convince my wife to to let us all let relocate our family to Australia, but uh, I'm not. I'm yet to win that debate, but one day maybe. <laughs> We'd be happy to have you. As we um, <laughs> as we wrap up, is there any other misconceptions or maybe um, myths around like the cause of plantar fasciitis? I know you mentioned shoes. Is is a lot of people like to blame the shoes, but anything that we haven't necessarily addressed today that you want people with plantar fasciitis or people want to be more aware of plantar fasciitis to know there's probably just one um and actually i wonder whether it's already dying out because 10 years ago i would hear this every day and present day i don't think i hear it anywhere near as much and i'd love to to hear if you still do and that's this uh relationship or or causation of correlation with heel spurs um i certainly remember going back 10, 15 years ago, like people would come in and they would, you know, or, or they'd see their GP, they, they'd have plantar heel pain. The first thing they would do would be they'd have an x-ray ordered to see if there was a heel spur, uh, mm. this little project, you know, little bony projection on the heel. And then once that, if there was, and by the way, given that a quarter of the entire population with, you know, have this spur, you know, as a, as a sort of anatomical variant, you know, incidental finding, then you, you know, you, you develop heel pain, you have an x-ray, they find something on x-ray, they, they, they marry the two sort of um, inappropriately. Um, I think this is already dying out, but I, I wonder whether it's worth mentioning, but a lot of people link the, the heel spur to like, you know, this little bony projection kind of causing, uh, you know, the plantar fascia irritation, or some people would say it's the pull of the fascia that sort of causes the bone to model and, and develop in that way. Um, the one thing I'd say is, if, if that is a belief that anyone has out there, it's it's probably incorrect, given our current interpretation of, of an understanding of this area, it's incorrect to assume this very simple causal relationship between heel spurs and plantar fascia or plantar heel pain. Um, as we said, 25% of the population have this finding radiologically with no pain whatsoever. Um, there's definitely been some really interesting studies, and I forget I forget the authors now that have looked at where the spur actually sits relative to the fascia, and it actually sits higher than where the fascia attaches. Oh. So the concept of it annoying the fascia, or the concept of the fascia pull developing it, um, seems to be sketchy. Um, it seems to sit a bit closer to um, a couple of the intrinsic muscles, um, flexor digitorum brevis, to name but one of them. So all I would say is uh, if you are a runner that has developed heel pain and you are of the belief or you've been told it's because you've got a heel spur that that probably is something that can be revisited yeah especially those beliefs that are very disempowering it's very little that you can do if they say you have a heel spur like well, well it's well, always going to be right? that this is the problem if, if this heel spur is causing my pain then you're quite right how, how do I ever get out of pain while this heel spur is remains? Um, and, you know, therefore someone, someone open me up and, and shave it off, do a bit of carpentry. And you're just like, you know, like I say, it's, it's, it's so damaging to belief systems and to sort of, therefore it will influence the behavior you do. What is the point in doing X, Y, or Z to help this problem? If the heel spur will still be there and the heel spur is what's causing my problem. You, you know, the, the, 
the sort of uh, ability to or the the compliance with other instructions or other recommendations like our strength work like taping you know why would someone do that if they truly believe the heel spur is the the culprit mm. while we're there um i swear this is the last little bit we'll talk about but c- like um flat feet or like collapsed feet like people have these really disempowering um you're always going to be like this. You're always going to have these collapsed feet. It's like this, uh, the language that people use is very, um, yeah, it's very detrimental. And let's just say they're a runner and they've been running 20 Ks a week for the last you know year and they haven't had any issues. And then all of a sudden they go to 30 Ks a week and they get this um, stir up of the fascia. And then they're told you have this because you have flat feet or you over pronate and like these sort of really, you know, poor language, but they've been over pronating in quotations and they've had flat feet their entire life, but they haven't had this plantar fasciitis. It's only just been since they've increased their mileage, but now they go away with this belief that they, their feet collapse and that they need orthotics or they need to correct this pronation. And otherwise I'm going to keep getting this plantar fasciitis. Um, it's something that I see a lot in my, in like Facebook groups, people just say, you know, this is what I've been told. Um, and is there any solutions? Do you find, um, can, can we allay those people's fears that the like the correlation between the two, or if you do have flat feet and you do have plantar fasciitis, that there's hope for this type of population? Yeah, I get this a lot too, like yourself. Um, and it's one of those things that we're always trying to, as best we can, sort of um, push back against and educate people. And it comes under that umbrella of education again. And all I would say to, to people is to runners is that when you go and see someone, what they're trying to do or what they should be trying to do is identify the problem, exclude anything serious or sinister, reassure you, you know, accordingly, and then put in place some kind of plan that gets you back to what you love doing. That, that should really be, you know, how a, how a consultation goes. Now, as part of that process, and often with, with absolutely the best intentions in mind, us as clinicians can say, okay, what do we think is the quickest way to get this person back to doing what they love? How can we reduce the the load on this this sensitive tissue? And unfortunately, the foot posture is an easy target. You know, it's it's the low hanging fruit, as we refer to it, because someone comes in and it's something that's very easy to observe, uh, quantify in some way and then, you know, discuss. Um, I always say to people, you know, if if. You know, I always lean on 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 other literature uh, and I go back to the back pain literature and sort of say, you know, there's that numerous studies that, that have taken people with no back pain, no current back pain and no previous back pain. And they've MRI'd their backs. And there's that there's that graph. And I know, you know, the one I'm talking about, which shows all of the open quotations pathologies in these people with no current or no historic back pain, disc, you know, disc bulges and X, Y, all of these problems on scan that look awful, that radiologically read horribly terrifying. But these are people with no back pain currently or historically. Yet if that same person who had those findings on image went bent over to pick up one of their children and suddenly felt a twinge and then had a couple of days of real immobility and and sensitivity, went to a doctor and they said, with the best interest in mind, I better just exclude anything sinister. Let's have an MRI. All of a sudden, that MRI, which had no meaning whatsoever, now falsely has, oh, this you've got a disc bulge or you've got X, Y, Z. And I think, although that's probably not the best analogy, this is what happens with the foot. 
where someone lives their life on the foot of whatever posture they have. And again, your foot posture is a is an expression of your of many things: your genetic code, your 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 bony architecture, your your um, laxity of your ligaments and you know it's the i always say to people it's the genetic hand that you've been dealt by your parents so like you i sit here look at you with a beautiful head of dark hair you got dealt that hand i i got dealt no hair <laughs> it, it is it is what it is we, we play the hand we've been dealt you know when we're looking at foot postures the, this is just another expression of our genetic code we live our life happily most of the time with no no problems like you're saying your example a runner runs 20k whatever their volume um problem free they suddenly jump up to 30K, 40K, you know, 50%, 75% increase. Um, they come in, the low hanging fruit is look at this person with their pronated foot or their flat foot posture. And, and it's, it's, it's a bit like looking at the person who's twinged their back, picking their kid up, who had an MRI. You know, if, if we'd have looked at that person's foot three years prior when they were training completely pain-free, we'd have seen the same foot and we probably wouldn't have given it too much attention. We're now probably falsely linking it. In the presence of a story like that, I usually say to people, and they will have a worry because someone they'd have read or they'd have been told, it's your foot posture that's overloaded the plantar fascia. And I'll say to them, no, no, you're, you, what overloaded your plantar fascia was 15 kilometers more this week. You know, your foot posture was doing just fine. You know, you, your tissues were doing just fine. You've just asked a bit too much, a bit too soon. You know, um, and we can go back into our water cup analogies or I'll often borrow Tim Gabbett's alcohol tolerance analogy of, um, you know, basically just doing too much too soon. It's, it's pretty simple. That's obviously a really different story to someone who comes in with air quotes, flat feet, pronated foot posture, who says to us, all I want to do is run a park run. You know, I, I've never been. No, I don't identify as a runner per se, but I, I'm really starting to fall in love with it. But. Every time I've tried, every single time over the last three or four years, I get to 15 minutes of running and I get this real tightness, tension pulling in the sole of my foot. That's they could you could have two people with identical foot postures, but really different stories. And one person, you could make a case that maybe their their anatomy is one of the factors that is limiting their their tissues ability to cope. And in the other, you just overdid it a bit, dial back on your training, etc. So I would always say to runners, you know, never, ever worry about your foot posture as an as a, as a isolated uh, observation. It is what it is, just the same way that we are all very different. You look out at the human race and we're, our variation is vast. And that is what that's the rich tapestry of life, so to speak. Um, what we need to decide is in certain scenarios when we think that's a factor or not. And unfortunately, out there, it's an easy it's an easy thing for people to erroneously link to what the problem is the final thing i would mention is that sometimes the foot posture isn't necessarily what the problem is so let's take our pronated or, or flat foot that has been treating someone beautifully they've doubled their volume they've annoyed their plantar fascia we could sit there and say your foot and, and the way it behaves isn't necessarily the cause of why your fascia is annoyed but now your fascia is annoyed this 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 sort of uh, this may be something that we want to consider. And the way I've, I've heard this, you know, explained before is essentially if you're, you know, using an upper limb analogy, if, if you're sensitive into extension at the elbow, 
whatever you know let's say you're walking you're running down the street and you, you you're, you're listening to a podcast and you uh, listen to this podcast perhaps and you you know you're, you're, you're not paying attention you catch your elbow on a lamp post and you really really inflame it and it gets really sore you can see i, I don't know anything about the elbow here i apologize in advance don't know why i picked the elbows and analogy but if you really really annoy your elbow inflame irritate sensitize your elbow what will probably happen for the next few weeks is it's sensitive into you know certain movements maybe into end range extension end range flexion so those movements are now something to avoid but they're not damaging movements they're not movements that cause the problem the problem was caused by the lamppost but the lamppost is long gone almost what caused the problem is not really relevant now what what we need to do right now is avoid the things that are are going to prohibit recovery so i'd not often say to people like we've, we've got the discussion of what caused the problem and sometimes we might want to redefine the parameters within which someone pronates or supinates with tape with orthoses with footwear but i'd always say to people this is something we're doing to try and desensitize and get things to settle down. This is not a narrative on your foot posture being problematic, damaging, you know, uh, dangerous or causative in this problem. You know, the lamppost in this scenario was you just doubling your training. We are now currently trying to get things to settle down. And my, my aspiration is that when things have settled and you've gradually re-exposed yourself to load and, and you're tolerant, tolerant again, you can go back to the same shoe you're in and you can discard the orthoses. Great. I think like even that explanation, that education is so much more empowering to the, the person that has the pain and they can see that and they can have a plan moving forward. And so it's just so much more proactive uh, for both the clinician and the patient to sort of be on that same wavelength and kind of have that, those next steps because you can see with that explanation, what you can do in, in order to progress. And then maybe some levels of discomfort or some levels of pain are okay. And then, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot more um, positive belief around that. And before I have you, like, uh, you've been extremely generous of your time and like the further we've gone on, you've still been the same enthusiastic, passionate, answered it to the, the <laughs> fullest extent the entire time. You're not just like, oh, let's wrap this up. And I want to finish up now to um, so we don't have a fear of me just turning this into three parts. But um, those people who want to learn more about you, I will include your Twitter. Um, I know you're, you're quite active on that. Um, I've got your podcast on Twitter as well. So Podchat Live is the handle. You've got um, sports underscore pod for Twitter. You have sportspodiatryinfo.co.uk as the, the website. Um, any other things you want me to include, I'll include the link to Podchat Live, the podcast as well, um, so people can go and have a listen. Anything else that you want me to include? Uh, probably just Instagram. I, I would certainly say I'm spending less. I used to be very, very active on Twitter. Uh, I spend a bit less time on there now. It just got a little bit toxic for me. And, and yeah. um, uh, you know what it's like. You, you just sort of think to yourself, why am I wasting time getting into fights with strangers? It's, there's more to life <laughs> than this. And, um, and the other thing is, of course, you know, uh, it's just kind of depressing at the moment in, you know, uh, basically in, in the UK and, and our entire pandemic experience uh for our own mental health a lot of us are now just completely ignoring the news um <laughs> and if you want to ignore the news you certainly i'm talking personally just it's, it's no good for my mental health so i'm avoiding twitter because as soon as something trends on twitter you find yourself down a rabbit hole so i would say instagram is where i hang out a bit more at the moment at least it just seems to be <laughs> uh you know healthier healthier for the mind so on, on yeah. instagram i'm sports podiatry info 
Okay. You can look at all the like puppy videos on Instagram instead. That'd be exactly. Life is better with puppy and kitten videos. 100%. <laughs> Once again, thank you so much for your time. Ian. this has been a blast. I know this is going to help a lot of people who are listening to this. Um, thanks for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Not at all. Thank you for having me. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.